Solomon is dead. Rehoboam sits the throne. The sun is setting on the united monarchy. Night has come. And this is what we will discover in 1 Kings chapter 12. Main idea this morning is this. Fear not, know who to listen to. Fear not, know who to listen to. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we ask that you would be present with us now. You would put our hearts in rhythm with your grace and your mercy. We implore you to speak to us through your word, by your spirit. Pray that you would cause us to enjoy intimacy together with you and one another as we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word this morning. We ask that you would not leave us the same. Reveal to us the idols of our hearts, our own sinfulness, and teach us to repent and find mercy and to trust you all the more. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Before we actually get into the text, I think it's necessary if we are to capture what the author intends for us to learn from this chapter, uh, that we take two of the verses and put them together. You see, in the middle of this chapter, uh, from verses 15 through 24, you sort of have the, the big thing that's happening, which is the division of Israel into ten northern tribes and then one southern tribe of Judah, and probably Benjamin, but we're not certain about that. Uh, and in Judah, you will have David's heir, the, the lamp of David, reigning throughout the rest of kings. Whereas in the north, you will have those who, Jeroboam and those who follow him ruling and reigning. The kingdom is divided. And all of this is a consequence of Solomon's idolatry. Remember, we uh, have looked at Solomon's life last week. We, we've looked at his idolatry. He has erected all these false centers of worship in and around Jerusalem uh, because his wives turned his heart away from the Lord and two idols. And so the Lord God has said in judgment of Solomon, he's going to tear the kingdom from Solomon's son. That's Rehoboam. Solomon's dead. Rehoboam's on the throne. And so that tearing of the kingdom is going to take place in this chapter. And it's at the center of this chapter. And, and what the author wants to make sure that we do not miss is that all of this happens according to God's plan and God's providence. God is working all of these events out according to his will. And we pointed out how that had started back in chapter 11, and we, we spent uh, two weeks ago really focusing on God's providence, and so we're going to sort of put the accent elsewhere this morning. But I wanted to first here read, these, read verse 15 and verse 24 and help us to sort of put on the uh, spectacles of providence on our, our faces as we look at the rest of the chapter and just sort of recognize that God is guiding and directing everything that we see happening. So, so verse 15, so the king, that's Rehoboam, did not listen to the people for or because, the reason why, it was from the Lord. It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. 
that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. In verse 24, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for or because this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. God is working out his will. He's fulfilling his word in this chapter. And so in light of God's providence, we are going to look at two major characters in the chapter and two sections. We are going to look at Rehoboam and Jeroboam. As we've already mentioned, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon who will rule in Judah, and Jeroboam is one that was identified by the Lord, an industrious man, a man of valor in Solomon's administration that God has raised up as sort of a counterfeit David, if you will, who will lead the people out from underneath of Rehoboam's oppressive rule and into freedom somewhat. God makes David-like promises to Jeroboam. If you remember back there in verse 37 of chapter 11, God says to him, I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house, lineage, dynasty, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. God has made big promises about and to Jeroboam. And so that's why we see one of the last actions of Solomon in verse 40 of chapter 11. He's sort of, you know, if Jeroboam is a new sort of David, Solomon steps into the role as a new sort of Saul as he tries to kill the one who is to be king of Israel, right? Verse 40, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt. We're going to learn from both of these guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, that it's not a good idea to ignore the voice of the Lord in favor of listening to poor counselors or even listening to ourselves. Both men operate out of a disposition of fear and worry, and their fear and their worry drive them into prideful self-reliance. Leads to both of them Opposing the Lord. And so that's sort of the, this, what we're going to see. Let's look now at verse 1 of chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam said to them, 
go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, that he would advise me to answer this people. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So the political situation is rather interesting. Rehoboam is going to be anointed king. Jeroboam knows that Solomon has died, and so he returns to Israel with those 10 pieces of Ahijah's cloak in his pocket and perhaps a twinkle in his eye. And he begins speaking on behalf of the people before Rehoboam. They are willing to coronate him as king as long as he fulfills a few conditions. They say, we will make you king if you will lighten the hard service of your father and the heavy yoke that he has put upon us. Rehoboam asks for some time to think it over and then wisely calls to himself the counselors of his father. His father was the great, wise King Solomon after all. You figure his counselors are going to be worth their salt. And in this particular context, it is apparent to the reader right away that their counsel is Well, it's pretty good. It's worthy of Solomon. It amounts to this. If you will serve the people today by granting their request, they will serve you in the days to come. Lighten the yoke. Use your authority as king to bring blessing to these people. It's good advice, not because it simply is going to appease the masses, we figured out through the reign of King Saul that that can be a really bad move. But th- this is the right thing to do. This is good counsel because authority exists to bless. The king is not to be one who serves himself, but serves his people, who uses his crown to rule over the people in justice and righteousness. After the manner that David spoke of, with his last words in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 3, David said this, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Authority, and this is the case throughout the Bible for anyone in authority, whether a husband or a, over his wife or a husband and a wife over their children or a king over the people or maybe in our day, your, your boss at work. Authority is good in the Bible. And it is always given in order to bless those under the authority. And so the counselors say, hey, listen to the words of David. Listen to our counsel. Don't oppress this people in the way that your father did for his building projects. Lighten their yoke. Serve them. Bless them. Be as the sun rising on them. This is good counsel. And so, of course, 
Uh, Rehoboam roundly rejects it. Verse 8. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave to him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise me to answer the people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people, who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little one is thicker than my father's waist or thighs. Pretty crude, let you think that and work that out for yourself, what they're saying. Verse 11, And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Verse 12, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Scorpions here, as fun as it is to sort of imagine, you know, the, the taskmasters throwing scorpions onto people, you know, being covered with them. That's not what's going on. Uh, scorpions is referring to a type of whip. I should read. It's a many-tailed whipped whip armed with barbed points or hooks that when lashed against the skin of the victim felt as a scorpion's sting. So he's saying my whips, my hand, my rule over you is going to be felt as heavier even than my father's. Why, we might ask, why does Jeroboam choose such a foolish course? One thing's for certain, we are to see that Rehoboam lacks the wisdom of his father Solomon. Whereas Solomon was full of wisdom and had the humility to ask God for a listening heart, which then we saw he got as he adjudicated that case of the women and the baby, we now see Rehoboam sort of acting according to his own way. He, he lacks the humility and the wisdom of his father, but he has a unique quality of hubris. See, in his pride, he, he says, the counsel that was good enough for my father, I will not listen to. I will find my own counselors and I will go my own way. I will exercise my rule over this people. This is my kingdom and, and it will not be taken from me and no one will tell me how to rule it. And we have to, I think, at least consider that he likely knew this prophecy about Jeroboam. Remember the Lord had said through the prophet Elijah who tore his cloak, said, take 10 pieces to rule for yourself. You're going to rule over Israel. Solomon's trying to kill Jeroboam. Uh, Rehoboam probably knows this. And then the people come to him and they're asking for concessions. And do you know who their mouthpiece is? What's Jeroboam? And so from Rehoboam's perspective, he's like, if I grant this request, I might as well hand Jeroboam the crown. You see? And so, so there is both a, a pride in Rehoboam and a fear. He does not want his kingdom torn in two. 
And so, he acts foolishly. It is his pride that leads to this foolish behavior and also the providence of God. You see this in verse 15, which we alluded to earlier. So the king did not listen to the people. Well, why didn't he listen to the people? We've said it's pride. But here's the explicit reason. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, so that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, none of this is by chance. God is ruling over all of it. Rehoboam's pride is his own. His foolish and stupid choices, those are his. He chooses them freely. And his pride cannot outrun the providence of God. His stupidity does not fall outside of the purview of God's sovereignty. God is not an ambulance driver. He is an orchestra conductor. Things are unfolding according to his will. Rehoboam is responsible for his actions. God has woven those actions into the tapestry of his plan for the world. And notice also, this is uh, going to take our minds back to the Exodus. Some of you have probably been thinking, this sounds very familiar, and we've seen Exodus imagery throughout Kings, but it's especially prevalent in this chapter. You see there in verse 4, lighten the hard service of your father on us, his heavy yoke. You see it again in verse 9, lighten the yoke he's put on us. Uh, again, verse 10, heavy yoke. Uh, verse 11, the yoke on us is heavy. Verse 14, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. Well, who does that sound like? Right, we go, we go back to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, and Moses and Aaron come to him for, for the first time, and they say, let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness so that we can worship the Lord our God. And, and Pharaoh says, never heard of him. Why, why would I do that? In fact, the only reason you're asking this is because you've got way too much time on your hands. Uh, therefore, I'm going to make sure that you still make bricks and do all your, your slave labor, but I'm going to make the yoke on you heavier because we're not, Egypt's not supplying the straw anymore. You're going to have to find your own straw and make the bricks. That should keep you busy. That should keep you away from these delusions of going into the wilderness to offer to some no-name God that I've never heard of. Things don't go well, right? The people get mad at Moses. Uh, so, some other things occur. But finally, you get to chapter 7. And, and on the way there, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, you're going to go before Pharaoh again. You're going to tell him to let the people go to worship me, and you're going to prove that I have power, right? Aaron, he's going to, Pharaoh's going to want a sign, and so Aaron can throw his staff down, and it's going to turn into a snake, right? And so they go, and they, they do that, and then um, Pharaoh, somehow he has like a Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry uh, on call, on retainer. He calls up his magicians, and they come, and, and they're able to produce this same sign. They throw staffs on the ground, they turn to snakes, and then Aaron's snake eats their snakes, Right? Really weird. After all the theatrics, this is what happens. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, 
and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is going to demonstrate his greatness in Egypt. He's going to exalt himself above Pharaoh. He's going to bring glory to himself. And the reason that Pharaoh refuses Moses and Aaron, yes, it's his own pride, but it is also the providence of God. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Likewise, here, there's a new sort of exodus brewing. Rehoboam is laying up heavy burdens upon the people, and in accord with God's word, the kingdom is going to split as Jeroboam, the the new sort of Moses, leads them out from Rehoboam's reign. God is turning these affairs. Stupidity does not find its way outside of God's sovereignty. Our stupidity can't outsmart the providence of God. God will bring about the fulfillment of his word. Verse 16, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Ahadoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus saith the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. I know it's shocking, but the scorpion policy did not go over very well. In fact, it instigated an insurrection. People stone 
Rehoboam's enforcer. He doesn't quite rise to the level of Benaniah, the punisher. Stone him, send him away. Rehoboam flees to Jerusalem, and he does what you would expect him to do. He's going to protect his kingdom. He raises an army. He's going to go to war in order to establish his kingdom. And then the word of God shows up. In Kings, first and second, the word of God is a major character. It's very similar to the book of Acts, what we see. Messengers of God die and are forgotten. But the message of God goes on and continues and bears fruit. Likewise here in Kings, the word of God and the mouths of the prophets of God is going to, to show up again and again and again in order to accomplish the purposes of God. And at this juncture, God will not have Rehoboam and Jeroboam going to war. The prophet comes and he says to Rehoboam, this is from God, do not go to war. And perhaps the most shocking thing in this entire chapter happens. The people listen. Uh, Rehoboam listens to the word of the Lord. Now he's going to fight with Jeroboam on down the road, but at least at this point, he obeys. It is extraordinary. Just two things quickly to take away from these first 24 verses. Um, one, we should know who to listen to. We should not give preference to those who might be closest to us. We should take counsel and then choose the counsel that is most consistent with God's word. That is wise counsel. Additionally, we should know that it is never too late to listen to the word of the Lord. So wherever our pride and our poor decisions take us, it's never too late to change course and to listen to God. We want to be a people who are unafraid to recognize and repent when we are wrong. It is from the devil, this idea that you should sin boldly, but then be ashamed when you repent. You see, we ought not be ashamed when we repent, but rather when we sin. We should come boldly repentant before the Lord. Humbly, of course, but boldly knowing who we have believed and who we have trusted. We should not listen to the evil one, our fears, or our pride, but to the word of the Lord. It's, it's never too late to turn from sin to Christ. Non-Christian, it's never too late to stop living life your way and to start following the Lord Jesus Christ. He will give eternal life to everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him. He died taking the wrath of God that is due to sins, to your sin and my sin, so that he might give that life to all who will come. He is risen from the dead, guaranteeing that all who trust in him will rise from the dead and enjoy eternal life. And to encourage you this morning, it's never too late to listen to and obey the voice of the Lord. And still this morning, Jesus says, 
commands every man, woman, and child. Repent and follow me. Follow him and gain life and fullness of joy forevermore. Second thing to, to note from the passage, again, we talked lots about this a couple weeks ago, is that we should simply trust God's providence. Always uh, pray in myself that I would have that sort of Job-type mindset. Everything goes sideways for Job, and, and he, he, his response is to worship. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. And later on in chapter 2, his wife says, curse God and die. And, and Job says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? He's saying, may it never be. See, he, he trusts God when the sun is shining and the, the leaves are beautiful on the trees, and he trusts God in the dead of winter when it's dark at daytime. It feels as if he's been abandoned completely. I pray that this would be our posture, that we would recognize that our Heavenly Father brings nothing to us that is not ultimately for our good and for his glory, that he is able to turn even the most awful of evil into something that demonstrates his great beauty. Obviously, the chief example of this is the cross. Wicked men crucify the Lord Jesus Christ freely out of the wickedness that is within them, out of their pride. And yet in the providence of God, it was the crucifixion of our Savior that secured for us our salvation. God always works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Recognizing that God is always at work in the world, even through our sins and through our shortcomings, is a great comfort. We said it many times. Uh, providence is the pillow upon which we rest our heads in the evening. And it is really good to know that, that our Stupidity cannot outsmart God's sovereignty. It's good to know that God reigns, that as chaotic as things might seem, he has still ordered all of it. He is in control. He is reigning. Nothing comes to us apart from God's fatherly hand. As one pastor said, circumstances don't determine God's plans. God's plans determine our circumstances. Friends, let us adopt that posture and ask for the grace to trust him more and more each day. God is in control of the dividing kingdom, the now divided kingdom in Israel. He has raised up Jeroboam, who has, in Moses-like fashion, led the people out of the oppressive reign of Rehoboam's Pharaoh-like rule. And now, Jeroboam puts on the role of Aaron. Look with me at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then 
then the heart of this people will turn to their Lord. They will turn to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel. Notice he's taking counsel. And made two calves of gold and said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people. They went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. It's to parallel the Feast of Booths. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Notice how the refrain here, he had made, he had made, he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day, in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is quite the sequel to the Exodus. You have almost the same thing. Out from an oppressive regime so that the people might faithfully worship God. And what do the people immediately do? They turn to idolatry. Indeed, Jeroboam builds not one, but two golden calves. And he uses the same language that Aaron did. Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. And Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why does Jeroboam forsake the promises of God in order to erect idols? Why does he act so foolishly? Fear and pride, just like Rehoboam. Jeroboam arrogantly sets up his own imitation religion, and he does so because he's afraid he might lose his kingdom. Just like Rehoboam, they're the same. You, you see that in verse 26. He said in his heart, the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. and They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam is afraid he will lose his kingdom. And so in his heart, he misuses his imagination, that's also called worry, and he worries about all of these make-believe circumstances. And he puts his trust and his hope in his faith more in his own worrying calculations than he does in the word of God. We read the promise God made to him earlier. He said, God said to Jeroboam, if you're faithful to me like David was, you'll rule over all that your heart desires. 
not enough for Jeroboam. Jeroboam is doing the math, and if the people continue to go and worship at the temple that Solomon built, they're going to turn back to Solomon's son, and they will kill him as a traitor. He fears orthodoxy. He fears losing his kingdom. This probably, of, of this chapter, jumped out at me the most. Because I thought, how often do I allow my fear to lead me into folly? Also, you know, I quoted Batman last week, um, and two weeks in a row is a lot, but same, same quote. I, I, you remember Two-Face says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. That's sort of what we said might have happened in Solomon's life. <laughs> sort of happens in Jeroboam's life really fast leads the people out as a hero, and then leads them right into idolatry. It is a horrific thing to sin against the Lord, and it is an unthinkable thing to lead others to sin against the Lord. And Jesus says that those who cause his disciples to sin would be better off if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast into the ocean. It's a serious thing Jeroboam has done, all because his fear was misplaced. If he feared God above all else, he would not have, he would not have betrayed God in his pride. Friends, there are things worse than death. There are things in this life that are worse than than death. It is better to die courageously in defense of the truth of one's friends than it is to live as a coward. Couldn't help but think of how well this is illustrated in Harry Potter. You guys are like, Harry Potter, Batman, same sermon? Yeah, I know. Uh, one of the books, I'm going to try to not spoil this for those of you that, that don't know, um, I, love the, I love the books. They emphasize sort of good versus evil, lion versus the serpent. Uh, love overcomes all. There's a sacrificial death and a resurrection. It's fantastic. But one of the major themes across all the books is the theme of friendship and of loyalty. And there's this big revelation in one of the books where we learn of a character who has betrayed his friends in order to serve the dark Lord Voldemort. And there's this huge confrontation. And the betrayer says to those who are loyal, trying to excuse his turning away, he says this, you don't understand, he would have killed me. It's his excuse for betraying those he loves. And the loyal friend's response comes. You don't understand, he would have killed me, then you should have died died rather than betray your friends as we would have done for you. you can't, there are things worse than dying. Jeroboam's case, if the people would go back to Jerusalem and God's word would prove to be false, impossible, but even if this imaginary situation had worked itself out in his life and they would have killed him, then he should have died rather than betray the Lord his God. 
there are things worse than death. Apostasy, turning away from the Lord and teaching as good that which is evil is worse than death. And Jesus warns us of this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus reiterates this truth in Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There are things worse than death. Betraying the Lord your God is worse than death. We should fear God above all else. Fear him more than those who can kill and torture the body, for they cannot touch the soul. And we have been promised new bodies and a resurrection. The Christian cannot ultimately be snuffed out by the world. Indeed, we must deny ourselves daily and follow Jesus. It is not worth it to loose your grip on the cross so that you might take hold of the world. I mean, this is just what Jeroboam does here. He's worried about losing these temporal things, and so he tries to find a way to appease the people, to gain power and to gain popularity and to gain a high approval rating. People can like him. So what does he do? He establishes a patently false religion, a parody of Judaism. I mean, he has the, the wannabe Feast of Booths. He uses uh, biblical language, biblical places, and biblical ideas. But he stirs them all together in a big pot of heresy and idolatry. He wants to be liked. Friends, Jeroboam's actions here are a picture of our current cultural moment. There are so many counterfeit Christians and counterfeit churches that are nothing more than cowards who have betrayed the Lord our God, who have chosen to teach what is evil as if it were good, who have besmirched the name of the Lord Jesus that they take on their lips. Know that they're not building golden calves. No, they're hanging rainbow flags. And you can be assured that those synagogues of Satan that have flags that are multicolored out front that say welcoming and affirming, well, on the inside, they have rejected Christ for their own rule. On the inside, they are waving the white flag of surrender to the sexual revolution. They have cowardly turned their backs on Jesus instead of clinging to his cross. And friends, we should respond to this in two ways. We should, first of all, weep 
and pray for the cowardly. Pray for those who have turned away from the Lord. Pray for those wayward churches that they might repent and find life. And we should also be warned. Solomon fell prey to sin. Two direct visions from the Lord his God. Jeroboam, promises of God made directly to him by a prophet, found his own interests greater than the promises of God. We should be warned because we too are tempted to value the approval of man and temporary things like our jobs and our families and even this life. We're tempted to value those things more than the word of God. We are tempted towards cowardice. But friends, we must not betray the king. We must continue to follow him faithfully. We must continue to preach that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, and that no one has Jesus who does not obey the words of Jesus. A Jesus who does not demand obedience is not the Jesus who lives in heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. A Jesus who does not demand obedience has no power to save. And the person who says that they are a Christian but then disobeys Jesus proves that they do not love Jesus but hate him. We must not turn. Now is, is not the time for weak knees and sick stomachs and fearful hearts. We ought not fear those who can kill the body. We ought to fear the one who will destroy body and soul in hell. We ought to recognize that gaining the whole world is not worth losing our souls. Now is not the time to falter or to wobble. Ours is a time in which we must stand fast and hard. Now is the time for us to love strong. And that means not a love that is unconditional affirmation. It means loving in a way that is consistent with Scripture. Any other kind of love is not love. Now is the time to love according to the Word. Now is the time to shine in the darkness. Now is the time to tell the truth. Now is the time to hold Jesus before the world because they need him more than ever. We need him more than ever. Now is not the time to lose your nerve, Christian. Now is not the time to compromise sound doctrine. Now is not the time Stop following Jesus. No, no. Now is the time to nail ourselves to the mast of our Savior once more. Now is the time to raise the banner of the Lion of the tribe of Judah and declare that Jesus is Lord, that there is no other. Now is the time to remind those counterfeit Christians and those cowardly churches who would raise up the banner of Satan in the form of of a rainbow, that the rainbow is God's symbol. is a sign of his covenant promise to save by grace all who would come to Christ Jesus our Lord, yet it is also a reminder of the judgment that came, of the great flood that destroyed all 
but those who took safety in the ark. We must remind the world that God's judgment is coming. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. We must tell the world, we must be warned ourselves and warn others. Judgment is coming. God rules and reigns. Jesus is Lord. And if you want to be saved from difficulties and suffering in this life, if you want to be saved from the wrath of God stretched out across eternity, you must come into the ark. You must follow Jesus. Friends, we must stay the course. We must walk by faith. We, we must fear not. We must know who to listen to. The siren song of the world pulls on our heartstrings, but we must not be strung along. We must cut the strings that bind us to the world and strengthen the sinews that connect us together as the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of death. You will rise. Don't be afraid of the slander of the world. You have the approval of your king. Do not fail him. Do not betray King Jesus. Do not lose your soul to grab a hold of the world. There are things worse than death. Therefore, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Might. Stand firm in the faith. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, do not be surprised when the world hates you. It hated its creator. We are servants, and we ought not consider ourselves above our master. When we see the potential for hardship and suffering coming towards us, we ought not get wobbly knees and choose cowardice and betray our king. No, no, we ought courageously continue to follow him. We ought to look to his words and his faithfulness to his promises and remember that his providence is at work in the world and that includes our lives, even unto death. Whether we are to stand boldly before rulers as Polycarp did and they say, renounce your Lord. Bend the knee to the state faith. Bend the knee to the sexual revolution. We want to be as Polycarp and say, then bring the lions. Then kindle the fire. 86 years have I served my king and he has done me no wrong. I will not deny him. 
Look over the course of biblical history and see God's faithfulness again and again and again. And gird up your loins. Strengthen your weak knees. Look at the chapter that precedes Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, where you see character after character in Scripture sustained by God, walking faithfully. How firm a foundation is laid for us, saints, in God's excellent word. Look at our brothers and sisters across space and time who have held fast to the cross until the very end. Let us be a people who put hearts of lions in our chests because we trust the Lamb of God who was slain and is risen again. Brothers and sisters, do not go the way of Jeroboam. Trust God. Fear not. When I read this chapter and I, I look at the two kings who are, let's face it, not great, they make bad decisions, and yet God is working all of it together for his glory. There's one part that sort of pricks my heart at the beginning in a unique way. I see in, in verse 4 the people come to Rehoboam and they say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And I feel like it gives a taste of what the people really want. They want a good king that will bless them. They want to serve him. They want a king that will give them rest. You can kind of step inside the shoes of the original audience and, and feel that ache for the Messiah King who was promised. And then how relevant is it when Jesus shows up in Matthew 11 and famously says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're reminded as we will be time and time again throughout Kings that there's only one king who can really bless, who can really give rest for our souls, who can cause us to have peace now and to have peace with God because he has forgiven our sins, shed his blood for us, and taken his life up again. Jesus gives rest. Jesus is in control. Therefore, we should fear not. Not listen to the whispers of the world. No, 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 brothers and sisters. Listen to the voice of the king. He says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what awaits you as you follow him faithfully to the end. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are great sinners. 
we thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our great Savior. We confess that we have been cowardly at times. We confess that amidst a world that has exiled itself from reality, we find it harder and harder to fit in. We thank you, though, that this is a reminder that we are to be in the world, but not of it. It is a reminder that we are called to love the world, but to not join it in its sin. It is a reminder that we are to live as children of the light. Lord, we ask that you would forgive our sins afresh, that you would put courage into us, that you would remind us daily as we put on the full armor of God, that though weeping may last for a night, joy comes in the morning, that though the world is full of various darknesses, your church shines like stars amidst a wicked generation. And that very, very soon, the sun is going to rise and all will be full of light. Your glory will fill all. Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory now. We worship you together this morning. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.